Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Murder at Mother Mountain Part 2. This episode returns to Western Tipperary in the famine year of 1846. We left Part 1 as Daniel and Ellen Burkery's house was being attacked. Now if you haven't listened to Part 1 of Murder at Mother Mountain, it's definitely worth checking that out first. I would normally say dive in wherever you want, but for this series, I'd really recommend starting at the beginning. Now, additional narrations on today's episode are from Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. The additional research is from Liam Costello. The theme tune is The Banks of Ceylon, performed by Nelny Cronin and played on the pipes by Liam Costello. The series was created with the support of listeners on Acast Plus and Patreon. Each week between the main episodes, I'm joined in a deep dive interview by an expert to look into the history surrounding these events. So this week I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Ann Buckley from the History Department of National University of Ireland in Galway. In a wide-ranging interview, Sarah Ann talks about family life in the 19th century with everything from sex, marriage and what pregnancy was like coming up. That's already available now on patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or Acast Plus. Now to start, we're going to return to Western Tipperary It's the spring of 1846 and the famine is spreading across the county and tensions are rising. Through March 1846, tensions rose across County Tipperary. Famine was extending its deathly grip. Crowds of unemployed labourers desperately seeking work were becoming a common sight in the county towns. The gaunt, thinning faces evoked sympathy from the shopkeepers and merchants, but it also made them nervous. Hunger made people desperate. Faced with the sight of their starving children, the labourers would do anything to get food. Riots, thefts and raids on houses would follow if something was not done. The Tipperary Vindicator, a local newspaper published in Nina, captured the growing sense of alarm. Hourly are our prospects becoming more alarming. The panic has now penetrated to places which were hitherto considered safe. 
It was thought that this part of Tipperary was in much better condition than most other counties. But the blight has made frightful ravages and the fears of the people are roused to the highest pitch. The price of potatoes is at present so enormously high that the poor are unable to purchase them. In God's name, let something be done to avert starvation. However, dark as these days were, the fear of starvation did remain a crisis of the poor in early 1846. Those with the money to buy food could feed their families even as prices increased. Indeed, Ellen Barkery and her husband Daniel were still more than able to feed their family of seven children. They also had a farm labourer, William Walsh, living with them. Indeed, Ellen and Daniel had remained so optimistic about their future that around March 3rd they had even hired an extra farmhand in the form of a teenager, Pat Hayes, who came with a large appetite. The position had offered Hayes a bed and, more importantly, meals. But once inside the Berkery household, the teenager realised there were other problems to be reckoned with that March, other than hunger. All was not well in the Berkery household. The atmosphere was tense, even toxic. Each night an iron bar was used to secure the front door of the house as a measure of protection. Only three months previously, Daniel Berkery had received a death threat from a local secret society which he had ignored and fear that they would seek vengeance over shadowed life on the farm. Indeed, Pat Hayes was only there a week when tensions in the Berkery household reached breaking point on March 10th, 1846. That evening had begun like any other. The sun had set just after six o'clock and in a world illuminated solely by candlelight and the glow of a fire, the rhythms of daily life were, to an extent, dictated by the rising and setting of the sun. So it wasn't long after sunset when the Berkeries prepared for sleep. With 11 people living in the house, people slept in most rooms. Alongside the central kitchen, there was a bedroom where Daniel and Ellen slept and a loft which was accessed through a hatch over the kitchen where the boys slept. The one room not used for sleeping was simply known as the lower room. This appears to have been used as a store for turf and potatoes. About 8pm, the family, having eaten what would prove to be their last supper together, started to go to bed. There was, however, still one person missing from the house. While Ellen Berkery, her husband Daniel, their six surviving children and the new servant, Pat Hayes, were home, the labourer, William Walsh, was not present yet. He had left earlier in the day and had not returned. The precise sleeping arrangements were to have huge consequences on what followed and among the first to go to bed were the male children, Jeremiah, Andrew and William, who climbed into the loft along with Pat Hayes, the teenage servant who had just arrived. However, after they climbed into the loft, a hand reached up from the kitchen below and firmly pulled the trapdoor down. The boys could not see who had done this, but shutting the hatch in this manner locked them into the loft. While it was not enough to arouse suspicion at the time, this was not normal either. Pat Hayes, the servant, who was staying in the house a week at this point, later said it was the first time he had seen the hatch locked from below in this manner. As the boys drifted off to sleep in the loft, Daniel Berkery, his wife Ellen and their four daughters made themselves comfortable in the rooms below, like they had on countless other occasions. However, as the house dozed off, 
the silence was broken by a tapping at the window in the bedroom. Daniel rose and peered out into the darkness. Then, relief swept over the old man. It was only William Walsh, the labourer, returning home. Berkery called to his daughter Grace, who got up and removed the bar behind the door and let Walsh in. Whether the bar was put back in place is unclear. When the labourer, William Walsh, came in, he sat by the dying fire, smoking a pipe, eventually going to bed in Daniel and Ellen's room. Tranquility again fell over the house. However, it was not long before it was shattered, and this time, permanently. The 21-year-old daughter of Daniel and Ellen, also called Ellen, would later recall how she was suddenly awoken by her mother screaming that her father had been killed. Ellen, Ellen, your father is killed. Climbing to her feet, Ellen Jr. found her parents' room illuminated by a single candle. Struggling to take in the room through the dim light, the 21-year-old was faced with her mother in a state of undress, just wearing a petticoat around her shoulders, screaming that four black boys had attacked her father. Black boys was a reference to the agrarian secret societies, who often carried out attacks like this because they masked their identity by blackening their faces. While the black boys were evidently gone and nowhere to be seen, there was all the signs of an intense fight. Her father was covered in blood, while William Walsh, the labourer, who was also in the room, had a bloodied axe in one hand. Passing the weapon to Ellen Sr., he left the room to catch his bearings. Meanwhile, Daniel himself had been savagely attacked around the head and his skull had been cleaved in in several places. Although he was still alive, he had the appearance of a man not long for this world. Blood was also seeping from his mouth. It was only a matter of seconds before the entire household was awake. The loft hatch had been opened and the boys came down to find the house in complete chaos. The agitated 17-year-old son, Jeremiah Berkery, asked William Walsh what he had seen. The labourer replied he hadn't seen anything. The house had been in complete darkness after all. However, Jeremiah, adding to the chaotic situation, lashed out at the labourer. Grabbing a thatching needle, a long bar of iron, he threatened Walsh. Unnerved, the labourer now said he had actually seen two men, Richard Rolls and another tenant of the Berkeries, Mick Blake. Their motivation for attacking Daniel Berkery was unclear, but William Walsh claimed he could identify them because he had caught glimpse of Rolls' back and toes and could identify him from this. Now, strange as this may sound today, in an age where Manny did not wear shoes, a distinct birthmark on the foot made this very possible. Only a few minutes had passed before the Berkeley children said the police should be called and as we saw last week, William Walsh offered to go. Given the station was less than 130 metres away, he was back in a matter of minutes with two constables, George Simpson and Michael Foy. It didn't take the policemen long to realise that they were dealing with a very serious incident, although despite the fact numerous people said Daniel Berkeley was dead, he was still clinging to life. This would need more policemen and individuals of a higher rank before any investigation could begin. So while Constable Michael Foy remained in the house, Constable George Simpson immediately left for the town of Newport, 10 kilometres away, to fetch more senior officers. It was in the dark, early hours of March the 11th, 1846, when the solitary figure of Constable George Simpson approached the town of Newport. 
passing the dark shadows cast by the deserted market square overlooked by the courthouse, he pushed on over the bridge before he finally reached the constabulary barracks in the town. Inside the building, frantic conversations ensued as Simpson revealed what had happened in the mountains. Daniel Berkery was dying, maybe dead. He had been threatened by a secret society and ignored their demands to evict his tenant, Richard Rolls. In the tense atmosphere of early 1846, the head constable in Newport, Henry Wass, prepared a swift response from the authorities and he gathered men to travel to the Berkery house at Turin Bryan. What time Constable Simpson had reached Newport is unclear, but it must have been in the early morning before Wass, Simpson and a party of police departed Newport. When they finally reached the farmhouse at Turin Bryan, somewhat remarkably, they found Daniel Berkery still hanging to life, but he was completely unresponsive. Hardly surprising, given his wounds were so horrific. Indeed, looking at the man, Wass must have assumed it was only a matter of time before he would be investigating a murder. Even if they could move the injured man as far as Newport, the town doctor, indeed no doctor anywhere, could help him. His skull had been cleaved in. However, the atmosphere in the house was somewhat different than it had been when Simpson had left. Tension remained, but the understanding of what had transpired was becoming more complex. For centuries, Occam's razor, the principle that the most likely explanation is the correct one, provided a solid basis for investigation. At the Berkery house, the police had several pieces of evidence. Three months earlier, the man lying supine and motionless on a bloodied bed, Daniel Berkery, had received a death threat unless he evicted his tenant, Richard Rolls. He had not evicted Rolls. While the threat had been anonymous, it was widely believed to have come from a local secret society who had a proven track record of carrying out brutal attacks. They also had a witness, his wife Ellen, who had seen the perpetrators. Four black boys, who she had mentioned to several people. However, when the head constable, Henry Wass, arrived, there was new information coming to light. Through the long hours of darkness, one constable, Michael Foy, had waited behind in the Berkery household for Head Constable Wass and the other policemen to come from Newport. Despite being distraught, Ellen Berkery had been able to provide the constable with a few specific details. The four black boys had broken into the house through a small window in her bedroom and then set about attacking her husband before escaping back through the window. The 28-year-old Michael Foy had gone outside to examine this window and had, to his surprise, found a neatly stacked mound of potatoes beneath the windowsill. It became immediately clear to the constable that no one had climbed in or out of that window. It would have been impossible not to disturb the potatoes. He had then gone on to recover the murder weapon, a bloodied axe, which was found under a dresser in the kitchen. It was becoming clear that Ellen Berkery's version of events was at the very least mixed up. Although in the chaos it was very possible that the attackers had not left through the window but instead the front door and cast the axe aside as they left the house. However, in the house, Head Constable Wass and the other policemen began to focus their attention on a new suspect, not the four black boys Ellen had mentioned. This was the family's labourer, William Walsh. When the police had asked him where he had been sleeping on the night in question, he had claimed he had been in the loft with the boys. This lie would not last long. Ellen Berkery, her daughter and several others in the house knew this not to be the case. Ultimately, it was the son, 
Jeremiah Burkery, who told the police that William Walsh had not been sleeping beside him in the loft. While they had yet to fully understand this strange case, it was clear that William Walsh had something to hide and was being evasive, and that was grounds enough for the police to arrest the man that night. In the early morning of March the 11th, 1846, the people of Newport twitched their curtains as the police who had departed for the mountains arrived back in the town. They now had with them the unfamiliar figure of William Walsh. Believed by the police to have been involved in attacking Daniel Burkery, Walsh would, in time, come to confirm the stereotypes many in Newport held about their near neighbours who lived in the mountains across a frontier as a wild, uncivilised people. However, in that March morning air, Walsh cut an impressive figure. The 35-year-old was taller than average, standing nearly six feet tall, with dark features, hazel brown eyes and black hair. In an era that celebrated pale complexions, the wealthier in the community undoubtedly noted his tanned complexion, described as swarthy, which revealed him to be a man of the land who spent his days outdoors. While this may have been natural in mountain communities, Walsh had crossed the frontier to a very different world with different values. However, whether the townspeople looked down on him as a farmhand was the last of Walsh's concerns that morning. He stood accused of attacking his employer, Daniel Burkery, who was, the last time Walsh had seen, lingering between life and death. If he died, William Walsh could potentially be facing a murder charge which carried the death sentence. On reaching the town of Newport, the police brought the man to a daunting building that overlooked the town square. Walsh was familiar with the courthouse. He had undoubtedly seen it on numerous occasions when he had attended the fair of Newport. But on March the 11th, he was brought into the depths of the building, to the grim subterranean world of the prison that lay beneath. Here, Walsh took his first steps into the terrifying gauntlet of the 19th century justice system. Fifteen years earlier, the Anglesey roads had been cut through the mountains and the police had followed us. At the same time, the judicial and prison system were being overhauled and the prison, or Bridewell, beneath Newport Courthouse had been one of dozens built in the 1820s. However, by 1846, the conditions Walsh faced in the jail were appalling. Even in the 1820s, in the years after it had just been built, the inspector of prisons, Major Benjamin Woodward, had commented, This new prison I am sorry to class with the most inconvenient and worst prisons in the district. It consists of two low vaulted cold cells under a large room built for the petty sessions. I have pointed out some alterations which may render the prison less objectionable. In 1827, the prison had undergone repairs and alterations which created separate cells for men and women as well as separate exercise yards but the prison had remained cold and damp. When the inspector returned in 1830, the impression he gave was shocking. The wall of the two small yards adjoining the river has been carried away by a heavy flood, and unless this is immediately repaired, the prison is quite unfit to confine any person in. There are only three cells and two yards, no day rooms, pump or privies. On March the 11th, 1846, William Walsh could have attested to the fact that it was quite unfit to confine a person. The cells had no natural light whatsoever, being cut into the earth beneath the town square. As moisture trickled down the walls, 
Walsh could hear the faint sounds of Newport coming to light as the sound of carriages reverberated through the walls. In the darkness, William had time to reflect on his predicament. Truth be told, he already had one foot on the gallows. Things did not look good. Several witnesses could put him in the room where Daniel Burkery had been attacked and then leaving that room with an axe. William had only fueled suspicions by lying about where he had slept that night and when he had arrived in Newport, the head constable, Henry Wass, had noticed blood on his sleeve. The one thing they did not have yet was a motive, but truth be told, William Walsh had the strongest motive of all to kill Daniel Burkery. His fate rested on what was happening back in Toreen Bryan. Would people reveal his secret? The question about what was happening back in Toreen Bryan was answered when the silence, monotony and building anxiety around William Walsh's future was momentarily broken by the sounds of keys turning in locks, footsteps outside approaching down the short corridor and then a familiar voice, clearly not that of a police constable or a Bridewell turnkey. It was Ellen Burkery. Perhaps just for an instant, for the briefest of moments, William Walsh may have thought she had come to visit him, perhaps even have him released. This was replaced, though, by utter dejection. A cell door opened and Ellen Burkery walked in. However, she hadn't entered William's cell. He could just hear the door close behind her, the key turn in the lock, and the jailer's footsteps slowly fade away, and the realisation of what was happening washed over the man. Ellen Burkery had been arrested. William's dwindling hopes faded still further. If Ellen had been arrested, the police were getting closer to the truth. Indeed, this had already been in the offing while William Walsh had still been back in the house. It had been obvious that Ellen Jr., the 21-year-old daughter of Daniel Burkery, had been suspicious about him from the moment she had awoken. She had, after all, seen Walsh leave the room and pass the axe to her mother. She had then led the search for the family axe with Constable Michael Foy, only to discover it missing from the usual place it was kept in the lower room. She had scoured the house for the axe, eventually finding it, covered in blood and grey hair, under a dresser in the kitchen. This had supported the idea that the attack had not come from without, but instead someone in the house had attacked Daniel Burkery and had contributed to William Walsh's arrest. Indeed, it was after his arrest that the Burkery children had followed up on other suspicions they harboured, this time about their own mother, Ellen Burkery, the wife of Daniel, believing she had played a part in his attack. They had taken the sensational course of action and gone to the police to inform them about their suspicions, which had led to Ellen's arrest. While William Walsh's hopes plummeted with the arrest of Ellen, he did not and could not fully understand the saga he had played a central role in. Indeed, the full story was only understood by two people. One of them was lingering between life and death, his head cleaved open by an axe. The other was the woman in the cell next door. In the darkness of her prison cell, Ellen was left with her own thoughts. An unusual experience for a woman who lived in a comparatively small house with nearly a dozen people. When she could contain her fears about what lay ahead, her mind inevitably wandered through the events that had led her to Newport Bridewell. 
an exact or precise series of events of what had transpired in the house on March 10th would never emerge. Indeed, it's possible Ellen and William Walsh may have been confused themselves over what had just happened. However, there was no escaping the longer view. No matter what way Ellen framed the events of the previous 25 years, she could not deny that she had reacted to what may have been a very hard life with a disastrous course of action. People have a tendency to seek moments when history turns, and it's very possible Ellen would have pointed to February the 14th 1821 as the day her life had changed and started out on a course that led her to her prison cell. That was, after all, the day she had married Daniel Berkery, a man nearly twice her age. Alternatively, she could have placed the turning point in her life to July 1845 when William Walsh arrived in her home. However, history is never clear-cut and the surviving evidence points to a variety of forces exerting influence and pressure on Ellen, each one gently pushing her presenting her with decisions, but her marriage to Daniel Berkeley does seem to have been the foundation of the story. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The background to Ellen's union with Daniel is unclear. While it was arranged, as was common for the time, the one surviving letter from the Berkeley family, composed in 1846, makes reference to an unnamed daughter of Ellen's, then living as a free settler in Van Diemen's Land, Australia. It's unclear who this daughter was, but as mentioned in part one, it does raise the possibility that Ellen fell pregnant outside of wedlock and her marriage to Daniel was forced upon her to one degree or another. Whatever the case, as the decades wore on, the faint echoes of Ellen and Daniel's relationship grew louder in historical records and a picture of a less than orthodox union emerged. Ellen seems to have exerted considerable influence over the marriage, which was unusual in what was a very patriarchal society. Between 1824 and 1829, she gave birth to four children. They were named Ellen, Stephen, Grace and Jeremiah. The choice of names was dictated by a custom that stipulated the first two boys and two girls should be named after their grandparents. Jeremiah appears to have been an exception. Rather than naming him William in honour of Ellen's father, he was probably named after a Jeremiah Kennedy, a neighbouring farmer who may have been Ellen's uncle. While this was relatively normal, things changed in the 1830s. Ellen gave birth to another four children. 
However, the naming customs and conventions of the age were dispensed with in a surprising fashion. When it came to the third boy in particular, he should have been named after his father. However, when the priest arrived in 1835 to baptise the boy, the choice of name must have provoked an uneasy glance and a quizzical look at Daniel. The child did not take his father's name, but instead was called William after Ellen's father. Indeed, all the children in the 1830s appear to have been named after Ellen's relatives. Two girls were called Catherine and Honora after her sisters, while another boy born in 1838 was baptised Andrew after Ellen's brother. By 1840, the family was unusual, given they had four sons, yet none of them bore their father's name. It was only in 1843, at the age of 40, that Ellen gave birth to a boy who was called Daniel. However, he would die in infancy. This suggests Ellen may have been the dominant figure in the household, a notion reinforced by the choice of godparents. At the baptism of each child, two people, a man and a woman, were named as godparents. There were no protocols to dictate who these people should be. But of the 18 godparents to the Berkeley's children, 13 appear to have been related to Ellen. Of the remaining five, none were members of the Berkeley family. Again, it does suggest Ellen was able to exert considerable influence over family life. This could be explained away through unrecorded and unusual circumstances and no judge or jury, not even in the patriarchal 19th century, would build a case for murder on such flimsy evidence. However, it certainly framed the unusual relationship that had led directly to the events of March 10th, 1846. I'm just going to take a breather from Ellen's story here. There's a lot of detail coming at you in just a few episodes. It's often hard to know in the editorial process about how much to put in and how much to take out. So I hope I've got that one right. Before we get back into the show, though, I just want to thank all the listeners on Patreon and Acast+. It was their support, as I said last week, that allowed me to embark on a really specific but lengthy piece of research like this. Ellen had been forgotten, more or less since the day she died, so digging up her story was a real challenge. And without the patrons' support and patience, it wouldn't have been possible. If you enjoy history like this, that's stories that aren't covered in history books or their podcasts or documentaries, you can make it happen by supporting the show on Patreon and Acast+. I've included links in the show notes below. It's really easy to get involved and it makes such a difference. And for your support, you get ad-free episodes, early access to the show and extra podcasts. All that said, let's get back to the show itself now. By virtue of the fact that their marriage was arranged, it's very possible Ellen and Daniel had little or no physical feelings for each other when they met. While many couples overcame such obstacles and developed a relationship, the reality for some was that they endured a loveless marriage. Given very limited evidence of their lives survives, we have no idea what the nature of Ellen and Daniel's physical relationship was for most of their marriage. The extent of what we can say is that assuming Daniel fathered their children, they were having sex intermittently at least, between the summer of 1823 when their eldest daughter was conceived and later 1842 when Ellen fell pregnant for the last time. Whatever the nature of this relationship was up to 1842, it began to deteriorate rapidly afterwards. By 1845, nearly two and a half decades had passed since their marriage and both had changed considerably. Time had not been an equal taskmaster. 
Ellen was still relatively young, aged only 42, and many people commented on her youthfulness and good looks. Furthermore, the end of her childbearing years marked a change in her life. Her final pregnancy brought to an end what had been two dangerous decades where she was either pregnant or in postnatal recovery, something which inevitably restricted her life. This contrasted sharply with Daniel. Starting the marriage in his 30s, he was well into his 60s by 1845 and considered by most to be an old man at the time. While he did continue to work, he had already exceeded the average life expectancy, which languished below 50. By the summer of 1845, their physical relationship appears to have been at an end, or at the very least, Ellen had lost all interest in Daniel and began to look outside the marriage for intimacy. Extramarital sex and affairs was not uncommon in the early 19th century. However, pursuing an affair was not easy. Ellen's own house was incredibly crowded, as was the wider locality. Ireland's population had grown from 6.8 million to about 8.5 million in the decades prior to 1845. In Turin Bryan, for example, a townland of just 761 acres, there were 25 households with 191 people living in them. Finding the space, to conduct an illicit affair was difficult, if not impossible. However, Ellen had pressed ahead. A combination of her desire for physical intimacy, her seeming dominance over her household, perhaps combined with possible resentments towards Daniel, may have contributed to what was the very reckless course of action that followed. When the affair started, and precisely how it did, is unknown. Perhaps it was a stolen glance that was never intended to be anything more but the look betrayed the feeling and from there one thing led to another. Or perhaps it was more premeditated. Ultimately, the origins were not important, but the nature and form of the affair scandalised people. By the later months of 1845, Ellen was sleeping with the farm labourer, William Walsh, who had joined her household in July. As we heard earlier, he was tall with dark features. He was also closer in age to Ellen, being about 35 years old. This relationship, aside from the fact that Ellen was married, broke 19th century societal norms in many ways. For a woman of Ellen's standing, a farmer's wife, to conduct an affair with a farmhand added an extra dimension of opprobrium and was complicated even further by the fact that Walsh was not only younger than her, but he also had his own wife and four children. However, it was a further connection between Ellen and Walsh that would make the relationship so problematic. It was incestuous. William Walsh was Ellen's first cousin. While her affair broke societal, social and moral codes, oddly, Ellen and William were reckless in the extreme. While keeping the affair secret would always have been a challenge, the pair appeared to have made no attempt to conceal it. By Christmas 1845, it must have been common knowledge in the community, given the way they were expressing their feelings. On one occasion, around Christmas 1845, the two had attended a funeral wake with another cousin of Ellen's, Andrew Bowen. With only two horses available, Ellen rode behind William Walsh on his horse, and while this can be dismissed as mere circumstance, the interactions between the two left little doubt in Andrew Bowen's mind they were having an affair. On the return journey, Ellen's lover started a lewd conversation with Andrew Bowen, saying in reference to Ellen, It's a pity to have a woman married to a man such as Burkery. He's only a scald in the bed with her. Ellen remained silent, which, in the context, left Andrew Bowen in little doubt that the two were sleeping together. While the wider community was becoming aware of the relationship, Daniel Burkery could not have ignored the obvious. 
Indeed, it appears the affair was being conducted in front of him, in his own bed. It would later emerge William Walsh, on occasion, shared Ellen and Daniel's bed, which was unheard of at the time. Whether Daniel was initially a willing participant in a menage a trois is unknown, but as it became public knowledge, he was certainly, outwardly at least, humiliated and embarrassed by it. He felt the need to point out to people that Ellen and William were cousins in an effort to hold back the tide of rumour rising around his household. To make matters worse, Ellen's children were also clearly aware of the situation in the house. Ellen Jr. was a 21-year-old woman at the time and had no illusions about what was happening. Later, she would recall how Walsh on occasion remained in bed with her mother even after her father had left the house. Little is known about events in the Berkeley house in the final 10 weeks, but the situation reached breaking point on the night of March 10th. After William Walsh returned to the house that night, he went to Ellen and Daniel's bed. He and Ellen were both in a state of undress when Ellen Berkeley Jr. woke to find Walsh leaving the room with a bloodied axe and her father horrifically wounded. Over the following days, as Ellen tossed these tumultuous events over in her mind in her jail cell, a fear of what lay ahead for her undoubtedly also dominated her thoughts. If her husband Daniel died, she and William Walsh would almost certainly face a murder charge. She also knew that if her children testified against her in court, she and William would stand little chance of acquittal. What she could not appreciate though at this point was the gauntlet opening up before her. Daunting as a murder trial where her children would testify against her was, the prison system she had just entered was far, far worse. She would have to endure unimaginable horrors inside Victorian prisons. Join me in part three as she and William are moved to Nina Jail. The investigation continues and the two eventually go on trial. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.